Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show all around the world. I really appreciate it. Okay, guys, I'm going to be completely honest. Um, each podcast takes, you know, a few hours to kind of edit and, you know, piece together and do the intro, blah, 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 blah. I had this episode in the can. I was so excited. And anyway, I went to kind of export it through my editing program. And basically everything was lost. Everything just deleted. So right now I'm, I'm about to cry. Um, oh my God, you would think after how many episodes am I on? Let's figure this out right now. It is episode 82. And yeah, anyway, still learning. But hey, that's what you do. With that said, thank you so much for listening to the show. We actually have a fantastic show for you today. On the show, we have Gary Wilson, and he is a teacher at America's Teaching Zoo. They have a very unique program called the Exotic Animal Training and Management Program, and this is all at Moore Park College in California. This guy is a wealth of information, and this is a great episode for all of you, you know, who've ever, you know, wanted to work with animals or even regarding like animal training. This guy was so much fun to talk to and he actually came as a guest suggestion through let's see two episodes back we had zookeeper brian on who graduated from the program he said you have to get gary on the show and i'm so happy gary agreed to it and kind of before we get to the interview i just want to say just kind of a little background kind of regarding the program and my interest of the etum program or exotic animal training and management program i'm just going to start saying etum because you guys i like I said, that's kind of a, that's kind of a mouthful there, but I heard about the program back when I was 16 years old. And so when I was 12, I started in animal rescue and at 16, I was a junior in high school. And that's kind of when you start thinking about college and places you want to go. And I know that, you know, going to college and pursuing my education, you know, learning about animals, wanting to work with them. That was so important to me. And I found out about the Eaton program at Moore Park College. And I was hooked like this place was just like a one-of-a-kind place where not only could you learn about animals but they actually had a zoo on campus home to over 140 different animals tigers they had lions hyenas uh, you know primates reptiles a variety of different birds i was like man this is the place i have to go and graduate it was a two-year program and i thought this is great i'll go to the program now mind you when you're 16 you don't really think about like all the logistics. And so I had over 40 different rescued animals and that included a baby alligator, pythons, tortoises, an iguana. I had a piranha, even a scorpion. I know not reptiles, but they, they were still kind of cool. But I was like thinking like, yeah, this is great. So me and my 40 plus animals will move to California. We'll go to the program. We'll graduate and everything's going to be great. And you know, life's going to work out exactly how you think it's going to work out. And as you know, it doesn't always work out like that. I really had to come to kind of face the terms like, hey, you either, you know, stay here and, you know, continue this animal rescue, stay put because you have a lot of animals that, you know, they, you know, they depend on you and you promise a forever home, stay put, you can get your education here at Boise State, or you can go a different path and you could drop the animal rescue, kind of drop everything, move away and go to the program. And 
I decided to stay put. I decided to stay put to care for the animals that I had already, you know, rescued and pursue a career in television here in Idaho and elsewhere, you know, nationwide while staying and, uh, you know, going to school in Boise. So I graduated Boise State in 2011 with a biology degree. I am proud to be a Bronco, but I have to say, sometimes I think what could have been. What would it have been like to graduate or, you know, go to the Eaton program and work with these exotic animals? And so whenever I come across anybody who graduated from the program, I just pick their brain because I'm just so interested. And I'll tell you what, this guy, Gary Wilson on the show, this is the perfect guy to pick the brain because he's been working in the program for over 30 years. He graduated in 1977. Now, uh, he teaches full-time. He has been since 1985. But during this interview, he's just going to talk really about his experience working with and training animals. He talks about working at the U.S. Navy's Marine Mammal Program, training dolphins to find mines in Hawaii, beluga whales in San Diego, a variety of different animals that he's, you know, worked with and, you know, the students that he was working with. And, you know, a lot of you who listen to the show want to work with animals. You're looking for advice, looking for tips, you know, looking for tricks of the trade. How do I get into this really competitive field? And I'll tell you what, this is the episode to listen to. He has great advice. Even if you're not wanting to, you know, go the more part college route or go the Eton program route, seriously, like listen to it because, you know, it's just great advice for anyone wanting to pursue a career in the zoological field. I love talking to Gary. Before we get to the interview, as always, make sure to please subscribe to the show on iTunes. Leave us a rating. The ratings are going up, which is so exciting. Thank you so much. Also, if you haven't already, please make sure to follow me on my social channels at Corbett Maxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. It's a great behind the scenes look at my life working with animals and trying to juggle a podcast and national TV appearances while also cleaning up animal poo. You might not want to watch these stories during breakfast, my Instagram stories, by the way. Yeah, just kind of a fair warning, kind of a joke. With that said, I hope you enjoy my interview with Gary Wilson, a teacher at the Exotic Animal Training and Management Program at Moore Park College. Perfect. Hey, thank you so much for doing this, Gary. I really, really appreciate it. Well, I always love an opportunity to talk about our program. Yeah, well, and you actually came as a guest recommendation, which I love from Zookeeper Brian. He's like, man, you have to have this guy on the show. And I'm so happy you agreed to it. Yeah, I listened to your interview with Brian. He did a great job of representing our program. He did. And if, if you, okay, so I guess you did listen to that. So you know that I always wanted yeah. to attend the Eaton program, the Exotic Animal Training and Management yeah. program. And my path kind of took me in a different direction, but I've always wanted to interview someone from the program or someone who teaches the program. And I'll tell you what, I've been doing so much research about you. And uh, you're the guy, man. <laughs> uh -oh. I mean, you've been working in the program. You graduated in 1977. That's right. Yep. And then uh, went off and trained dolphins for the Navy. Wow. Okay, so let's just back up. Have you always been fascinated okay. with animals? Yeah, I guess so. Um, I tell a story how my dad was uh, an avid golfer, and he always tried to get me involved in golf. And um, I think the last time he I, – I don't know, I was 11 or 12. He took me out to the golf course and about the – third fairway as we're walking along i found two king snakes that were mating and i had to catch them of course and dad i gotta take these home and i think he gave up trying to get me interested in golf at that point so yeah. and so did you have pets growing up at all yeah i had dogs and cats um but and then i had uh, i had snakes from the local area and lizards and sometimes i'd 
we on summer vacations we would go out to uh, the Colorado River. I grew up here in California. Okay. And we'd go out to the Colorado River, different places that would go water skiing and sometimes I'd catch desert iguanas and different uh different things and bring those home. Oh, um nice. We had, uh, and then I, I built a 120 gallon saltwater aquarium and uh, uh, collected uh, things from our local tide pools. So I had, I had fish and uh, I had several octopi, octopuses. Really? And, uh, how yeah, do you, how yeah. old were so, you? How do you build an aquarium? How, I mean, what? Well, I was, I was in, I was in high school at that point. But, okay. Uh, yeah. I found, I found uh, plans and it was, it was actually pretty cheap to do. It was, it was using uh, plywood okay. and, and sealing it with, um, with a latex paint. And then I um, went to the glass store and they had a, a big piece of glass that had, they had taken from a uh, shop window that had been broken and there was a big enough piece there. I had them cut it to the size I needed and then, silicone that into the uh you know into the front of the uh this box this plywood box and yeah it worked great really now did you have to go through a trial period yeah. because gary like i i think my fish expertise goes to like maybe a beta fish i did i did have a piranha once <laughs> but like yeah. did you go oh, through wow. a, did you go Pretty through cool. like a trial period where you like you know what i mean yeah Long, there's yeah yeah, there's trial and error. There's some trial and error that I did. I mean, I had I wanted to keep local stuff, and uh-huh. so um, I scavenged an old uh, refrigerator and made a chilling unit out of that, so I could chill the water, and uh, and uh, so it get the because it gets pretty hot here in Southern California where I live, but the water is relatively cool, so I had to chill the water down and that kind of thing. So yeah, it was pretty complicated, but uh, it was it was pretty cool. Wow. Okay. Hold on. Talk to me about octopi, right? I mean, they are so unique, yeah. right? I mean, did you ever have issues with them escaping out of the tanks? Like you hear infamous stories from aquariums of them escaping and yeah. How was yeah. That? I, I only, I only had, I only had one. Uh-huh. Fortunately, I only had one that climbed out of the aquarium and found him on the floor in the morning dead. Unfortunately. Oh, God. But, oh my God. Yeah. 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 But, uh, the, um, I would go to, um, I would go to the uh, breakwater mm-hmm. at the harbor, and I would catch crabs, line shore crabs, to feed to the octopus. Uh-huh. And uh, I just told this story in my class. I was talking about arthropods, crustaceans, the other day in, in my animal diversity class. And I had the occasion to put this this uh, crab in, and I had, in the process of catching him, he had lost one pincher. He only had one left, and I put him in with the octopus, and the next morning the octopus was dead and uh i said oh shoot and but these octopuses don't live very long um and i pulled it out right and i kept the crab and i started feeding the crab and then i don't know uh, a month or two later i i found the crab was dead and ah shoot and i pulled it out and then a few days later i see this new crab and well it i it wasn't a dead crab it had molted its uh its shell its skin and um, the amazing thing was, here was this new crab, and he had a he had two pinchers now, so he had you know regenerated a complete new pincher inside of his body uh, before he molted that that skin. So that was pretty cool. That was really cool. Did you keep the crab for a while, or? Yeah, I kept him for a little while, and then I let him go. I figured, well, oh. he, he, uh, he I, I I I caused him to lose that pincher in the first place, and then uh, so now I. 
fed him up so he could grow it back. And I thought he deserved to be let loose. Wow. So I put him back in the ocean. That is so crazy. So did you grow up like wanting to be a marine biologist or work with marine animals? Yeah, I think I was most excited about marine biology in high school. And I had the opportunity to take a marine biology class here at Moorpark College when I was a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a class that, in fact, Bill Brisby, the man who started the Edom program, it was a class that he offered. And this was actually just about the time he was starting to get the Edom program going. And uh, so it was a class he offered for high school juniors and seniors from out the county. You had to be recommended by your marine biology teacher at the high school. And I was fortunate to be chosen. And we had classes here at Moore Park College on Wednesday nights. And then on Saturday mornings, we went out to this man-made island called Rincon Island that Brisby had a relationship with the oil company that owned it, Atlantic Richfield. And you could drive. It was a half mile off the coast. And it had been made of this pile of rocks and stuff and uh, for drilling there. And um, there's a half-mile-long causeway you could drive out to the island. So every Saturday, we would go out there, and, and they Brisby had a little lab set up, a bunch of aquariums and circulating seawater. And we would, uh, those of us who knew how to scuba dive, we would dive and collect uh, specimens to put in the aquariums and maintain those things. Wow. How cool. I mean, that's just, do you look back and think like, man, those were the good old days? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was exciting times. It was because the, the, the diving there was challenging and that the water was always, the bottom was pretty silty. And so mm-hmm. the, the visibility was like four feet when it was a good day, you know, wow. and, uh, but we saw all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, swell sharks were swell sharks are like the chuck wall of the ocean. They get into crevices and they swell up. If you grab them, they swell up in the waters. There. And oh, wow. so we would, I, I remember one time pulling, I would grab those guys and pull them out frequently. If you did it quick enough, you could pull them out of the rocks. And, and uh, I saw just this tail of one. I pulled it out, and it was a lot bigger than I had expected. <laughs> he was a handful, so I shoved him back in the, <laughs> in the hole. <laughs> shoved him back. So let's talk really quick for anyone who doesn't know. We have a lot of young people who listen to the show who want to you know, work with animals. A lot of people have heard of the ETEM program, but a lot of people haven't. So can we just briefly go over the, just the program that you were you know, in, basically, and now that you teach at yeah, we get a lot of people who think that the only way they can work with animals is to be a veterinarian, for example, because that's how they get exposed to um, seeing people work professionally with animals. But there's actually lots of ways that people can work with animals. And so um, some of those some of those students, they start on a you know veterinary school degree and then they hit organic chemistry and struggle with that and decide, oh maybe this is... <laughs> you know? Gary, that like that class causes yeah. so many drinking problems across the United yeah. States. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. and I sorry, I had yeah. to take. I yeah. got a degree in biology, so we had to take all the chem. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, it's just right. A, right. It's, I I I didn't mean to cause any flashbacks there. Um, <laughs> it's the, awful. But yeah, but so um, so we are training people to for the animal care industry. Uh, we think of it as that broad, and we we focus on three areas: zookeeping, animal training, and wildlife education. Um, and so we start with basics of care, 
the everybody has to learn how to care for the animals. And we're fortunate to have a zoo on campus here, America's Teaching Zoo at Moorpark College. And so we have about 120 animals here of all different kinds, birds, reptiles, uh, arthropods, uh, lots of mammals, uh, about a almost a third of our collection are primates. And, uh, and we have uh, a couple lions, a couple tigers. And so the students learn how to care for these animals, how to work safely around these animals. Um, and then they learn how to, how to share their passion with other people through education, through doing presentations with animals, both here at the zoo. We have school groups come in for, for programs here. And, and then we also have uh, a class, an outreach class. In fact, uh, one of your other guests and one of our graduates, Rick Schwartz, uh, yes. teaches that class. Who's, so, and who's, who's uh, now on Animal Planet and at the San Diego Zoo. Right. I mean, he's a great example that's of what you could do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We had, to, we had to get another graduate to step in, uh, Samantha Passavoy, to step in and cover for Rick uh, this semester while he's – doing his glamorous thing on animal planet. So, um, <laughs> That's funny. So, uh, so we, uh, and then we also, throughout the program, we also um, uh, teach the animals how to train animals, you know, teach the students how to train. And that's really my role. Um, that's my, the main thing I do is I teach the, besides the animal diversity class, I teach the animal behavior and animal training classes. And in my animal training class is the first first exposure they get to training. We talk about the theory in lecture of classical conditioning and operant conditioning. Mm. And then in the lab, they um, they do an observation project. They have to do 30 hours of observation on one, of the, one or more of the animals in the zoo and answer a research question by collecting data. And, um, and that um, is an important skill to develop. Uh, as a as a keeper, as a trainer, observing animals, and then um, and then they also in that lab, my animal behavior lab, they have to train a rat, and oh. uh, they develop yeah. So they they make an obstacle course and train the rat to do a, a a chain of behaviors, a sequence of behaviors, and it's up to them to come up with the behaviors. Um, I help them along. I give them you know advice and some ideas on on things to train. And then uh, at the end of the semester, they have three minutes for their rat to perform. Oh, my And God. that's a big chunk of their grade in the class. Wow. Okay. And so really quick, like I was telling, because my wife earlier was like, oh, who do you have on the show? And I was like, oh, Gary Wilson, like he's this pioneer in animal training at Moore Park College. And I basically explained to her, this is like a one of a kind school. It's like the Harvard University of like animal schools, right? I mean, I would say it's like a really prestigious yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's. I think it's a really good way to explain it because it's really one of a kind. There's like what one other facility in Florida, but was it Moore Park the pioneer for this type of program? So there's about half a dozen schools that teach zookeeping, uh-huh. and the and then there's two of us, two community colleges in the country that have actual zoos on campus, mm-hmm. and uh, Santa Fe Community College mm-hmm. in Gainesville, Florida, is another one, and they they started about a year before we did. Okay. Uh, their focus, their focus is on zookeeping, although they're starting to do more behavior modification now and, and education as well. Um, and then, so they're on the East coast and we're on the West coast and, uh, the, uh, there's other programs that utilize like Cheyenne mountain zoo is one I can think of that utilize local zoos, uh, and their students go there and do some, some work. But, 
it's one of the great things about both us and Santa Fe is that we actually have these facilities and these animals on campus. So the, the students work every day with it. We, the working with animals is a different kind of job. As you know, it's, it's more of a lifestyle, right? You know, these, <laughs> the, the, the animals don't punch a you know, time clock and, yeah. uh, they need attention all the time and, uh, they, they don't know that it's a holiday or whatever. So, you know, our, our, um, our students, we try and recreate as realistically as possible what the working environment is going to be for them so that uh, they know what it is. Not only are they learning the skills, but I have a lot of employers out there that tell me one of the things that they're, they, uh, one of the reasons they hire students from the EDEM program is because they know that these people know what they're getting into. They know it's going to be hard work and, and that they have to be dedicated to these animals. Yeah, and I remember as a junior in high school, I found out about the program and was just like, this is what I want to do. And, you know, and I, you know, got that book, Kicked, Bitten, and Scratched, and I just was reading, you know, I would check the website daily. And, um, yeah, and I loved it because one of the number one things on the website was like, you know, because it's so competitive. A lot of people in the animal or who are not in the animal world, they don't understand how competitive these, you know, these zoo jobs are. <laughs> and right. I, I remember right. reading on the website that, like, the majority – of like zoos, they'll just automatically pick more park graduates because of just that credibility. And they know, you know, the students know what they're getting into. I've had a lot of employers tell me they, they, uh, don't autom not necessarily automatically hire people, but they certainly will look at their application and, uh, put them at the top of the stack to go through. But we, it is, uh, yeah, it is. A, it's a, it's a, one of those professions where, there's because people love what they're doing with the animals. Uh, it's not a high paying job, but there's a lot of people who, who want to do it. And so, um, we had a graduate just a few years ago, went for, um, a keeper job at uh, Brookfield zoo in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And, um, he was competing with 300 people for that one position. What? Um, so, and he, he unfortunately didn't get the job. Someone with more, actual experience, you know, paid experience, got the job, but he managed to get a, his foot in the door and got hired by the institution in the education department. And, uh, I actually haven't checked up on it. I haven't seen if he's still in education or if he's moving up, you know, wants to become a keeper. So anyway, that's, and that's, that's not an unusual story, unfortunately for this, this kind of uh, business. Yeah. So many people email me. I'm, I'm serious. I, at least, at least once a week, like, you know, like, what do I do? Like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get in and I, you know, I've sent out 50 applications and, and they're just so, you know what I mean? Just, I, I don't know. Sorry. My Siri just yeah. went off on my yeah. phone. <laughs> but do you, I mean, what advice do you have for people? I, I know we're kind of early on in the interview, but I'm just curious of like young people or who are just out of school, like wanting to get that job. What advice do you have for them? Well, I have, you know, we have students, our program is tough too. Um, in fact, I just gave first midterm in my animal diversity class and, and, uh, I've got, uh, a number of our first year students who have less than a C in that class. And oh. so they're going to have to work a little harder. Hold it on. Can, it, it's a challenging class. Do you have, <laughs> and, do you have, a, do you have uh, a little bit compassion, Gary, just a hair compassion? You're like, Oh, but you know, yeah. okay, good. I, I, yeah. I, in fact, I was telling the students just the other day, I remember when I was in graduate school, and I hit, uh, I mean, organic chemistry was not fun, but I remember hitting uh, neurobiology. My advisor wanted me to take neurobiology. And I thought, oh, it's got biology in the title. How hard could it be? And 
it was like you know electrical engineering it was oh. it was really hard and myself and a, and a bunch of us in the class failed the, the midterm in that class but so yeah I, I i've been there i've been a student all my life and i you know that's one of the great things about teaching is that you get to continue to learn um I have students ask me questions in class all the time. I go, oh, I don't know that. Let me go find out. And uh, <laughs> so it gives me, gives me an opportunity. And, and I have them teach me things too. So uh, it's great. But in terms of advice for someone who wants to get into the industry, uh, of course, I think the going this route through the Edom program is the best way to do it. But it's not the only way to do it. Um, we need good people, passionate people caring for these animals and spreading the word that these, that wildlife needs help and that we need to care for these, these animals, not only in our, uh, under human care in these populations that we have, but also that we're utilizing those animals to, to teach people about the vital place that these animals play in the ecosystems and that, that we need to be protecting the habitat. And there's so much to do. So we need great people, whether, and I'm, I, try and help people get into the field, whether they come through the Edom program or, or some other way. Um, I think one of the, one of the strengths of our program is the hands-on experience that they get. We're fortunate to have this living laboratory of America's teaching zoo here. And so the students get this actual hands-on experience, both in caring for the animals and training the animals and presenting the animals in, in uh, educational presentations. So if someone is um, trying to get in the field and they can't go here to Moorpark College or for whatever reason, I, they should just try and get some experience. They should find a way um, to volunteer with a local veterinarian to get some experience, look for wildlife rehab facilities. There's, uh, there's great organizations out there helping uh, injured and orphaned wildlife all the time and you can get some great experience handling those animals, helping care for those animals. Um, and, uh, you know, even working on a farm, mm -hmm. working with big animals, um, the, the experience is, you know, the degree is helpful. Sure. But people want to know that you've demonstrated that you can actually do the job. And so that's where the experience comes in. So that's, that's my, single most important piece of advice i think is look for opportunities to get the experience and get it wherever you can mm -hmm. i also tell people too, like just continue like don't give up just continue to be you know persistent <laughs> just continue to apply and just you know what i mean like just don't give up <laughs> like, yeah. it doesn't that's right it doesn't that's right it doesn't happen overnight no that's true and you have to in this industry you've got to be willing to move around uh when i graduated from the program my I mean, all through the program, I wanted to work with marine mammals. And we had a little sea lion here at Moorpark College that I got a little bit of experience with. But um, uh, I actually applied at uh, SeaWorld with uh, one of my classmates, Julie Scardina. What? You know Julie? Yeah. Oh, my yeah, God. We what a small world. Okay, she go was, ahead. <laughs> she, was, she was the maid of honor at our wedding. And uh, so, what? yeah, we're good friends. And, oh, that's uh, awesome. So, and we had we had a strange interview. We she and I drove to San Diego and interviewed with the director of training at SeaWorld in, in San Diego. And I could tell. I mean, they made the right decision hiring Julie. I could tell they were really looking, you know, for the person who was going to become their first female killer whale trainer. And uh, 
and they found her in, in Julie. So, um, but I went off to, um, to Navy and I, it was back then in 1977, mm-hmm. it was a little, it was, the program was classified. And, uh, so there was some trepidation in the interview. In other words, I, you know, I was, they couldn't like the, the program director, I had to drive down to San Diego and, and the, for the interview and the program director said let's sit out on this picnic bench picnic table all so we can talk i uh, i've got classified stuff on my desk in my office so we can't go in there <laughs> and and so they couldn't really tell me what i would be doing other than it i had to be able to scuba dive mm-hmm. and it involved open ocean work with dolphins but that was it i didn't wow. know and so yeah and uh, the program was since been declassified so now i can now i can tell you without having to shoot you that we um you know that it was training uh mine hunting training the dolphins to detect mines and uh so this is something that the navy does they've got all kinds of systems to find these these mines that are made to blow up ships and um uh this was in the early days of uh training that that system it took a we had a, t- a training timeline a training plan that was uh, 18 months long because um, there's a lot of moving parts a lot of uh, a lot of stuff the animal had to learn and uh it was a pretty complicated system so uh, but it, it was amazing training i think it's some of the most complicated training that there is uh you've got this uh, uh dolphin in its environment uh untethered it can go uh, wherever it wants, it can leave at any time it wants, and uh, it is looking at you for cues and uh, and fish and 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 uh, it was it was just amazing. It was really amazing, and working in all kinds of different conditions. Now, hold on, we're okay, okay. So, you had you had have you previously ever worked with dolphins or other cetaceans, or did you just go in for this job and <laughs> like interview for it? <laughs> So, um, we had, like I said, we had a little sea lion here at Moorpark when okay. I was a student, but, uh, we certainly didn't have dolphins. And in fact, when I interviewed the head trainer, like I said, he couldn't tell me what I would be training, but he asked me about what I had trained here at the college. And probably the, the thing that was most, um, the experience I had that impressed him the most was I had trained a river otter. It was actually an otter that we, a male river otter. North American River Otter that had been given to us by SeaWorld in San Diego because it had bit a trainer, um, open an artery on his ankle. Oh, and, okay. and so they decided this animal was a little too aggressive. So we worked him in protected contact. We didn't call it that back then, but that meant hands off. And so um, the animal's in his enclosure. I'm outside and I've got uh, a clicker and uh, some fish and you know to feed it and i have to shape its behavior so uh, i have to communicate what i want to the animal through the use of that that clicker as a bridging stimulus and the fish as the reinforcer and um uh, so i taught it to do different behaviors in there in the its enclosure and it had to learn to discriminate the different cues that i was giving it and they had trainer for the dolphin project, he saw that that was the, the task that they were training the dolphins to do was a discrimination task. They have to 
discriminate whether a, a mine is present or um, if uh, it's uh, not there or if there's actually a mine, but it's already been marked. It's already one we know about. And so um, he saw that as uh, similar to what I'd have to do with the dolphins and that it's all operant conditioning with the dolphins as well. So you're shaping the behavior. You're not manipulating. You can't can't wrestle them around where mm-hmm. where you want them to go, mm-hmm. and um, you have to communicate to them with this with this language of operant conditioning in order to uh, teach them what you need them to do. Okay, so this is all. I mean, I of course have heard about the U.S. Navy Marine Mammal Program, but this is all just kind of how they train them is so new to me. It's very you know foreign to me. If they do find a mine, how do they let you know? Is that a dumb question? Like, <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's not like the dolphin can come up and say, "Hey, there's a carbon, there's a mine over there." <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, okay, but, good. <laughs> what, they, what they do is they have, no, they have. Um, so we have to, we have to give them a way to communicate back to us. And mm-hmm. so when I was there, uh, they've modified a little bit now. But the way I, when I was there, we had two. Uh, rubber balls that were sticking off the side of the boat and uh, they were attached to the side of the boat and we had taught the dolphin okay if there's if there's a mine present you come up and you hit this ball on the right uh, the trainer's right hand side Mm -hmm. if there isn't or if the mine is marked then you you touch the ball on the left and so in we would we, we start out just in a floating pin and we're dropping little simulators, little uh, things that, that metal objects in. And we ha- we're teaching the animal to use its echolocation, its sonar, to detect that thing and do a, do a search pattern where it swims out in a circle and, and echolocates around to see if there's an object and then come back and let us know by hitting either the right ball or the left ball. And then we'd reinforce them when they were correct. Right. And so wow. in the training process, we control the conditions. We know that there's something there or there isn't something there. And um, and then we reinforce them when they're um, answering correctly. And then we then we move out into um, uh, deeper water, we move out of the pen. And uh, we have to teach the animals to follow the boat out where we're going and um and then start looking for these actual mines uh, laying on the bottom. And these things, you know, if I, I remember when I was growing up seeing, you know, uh, World War II movies and these mines were these mm-hmm. big balls with spikes sticking out, right? Yeah, the submarines. Yeah, are, <laughs> yeah they, they have mines like that, but most of the mines look like just big bombs and they just lay on the bottom and they're, they're pretty sophisticated. They can, they listen to ships and they, they just, they go off when, they hear the third ship go by instead of the first one. And all, yeah, they do. It's really sophisticated stuff. And it's important that note, they're not made to go off. They're not made to blow up dolphins, right? So yeah. the dolphins are safe work, working around the mines. Um, but we would, um, I remember, uh, you know, we would, to, to at, as the training progressed, then we periodically, we would test the dolphins. And that meant, Going into a, uh, a situation where there's there's mines that have been inert mines have been placed out there, and the trainer doesn't know where they're at, and we have to find them, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and then the uh, there was, and so that's the real test of whether the, the animal is doing it correctly. I had um, one of the um, 
there was an area where we would boat follow and we would go through every day from a deep um, range of mines back home. And um, several times my dolphin would stop and indicate, hey, there's a mine here. And we're going, there shouldn't be. We don't know. And so I would... I would give the dolphin a marker and he'd go down and I'd have a diver go in and look. And it wasn't very deep. It was only about 15 feet deep, but the diver guy would snorkel over and he'd look down and, and say, no, nah, there's nothing there. So we'd go on. And then the next day the dolphin would do the same thing. It's happened about four times. And finally one of the, uh, one of my divers, he dove down and started digging in the sand and he found a, uh, a mine that was buried under the sand. Wow. And that's, that's when we learned that the, the dolphins could find these things buried also. So that's now a normal part of their training. Wow. That was pretty cool. That is so cool. Are you happy that your path took you to that program instead of like SeaWorld? Yeah, I am. Um, I, the, uh, I mean, I think any of the students in my, in my classes could tell you I'm not a great showman. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Why is that? Know. Do you freeze up? Or are you very like scientific? You're a great interviewer. So, like, <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I think I, you know, it used to, we used to have, um, we, we used to have night watch here. Uh, oh. we used to have the students had to come in one night a week and stay all night with them. Mm-hmm. And when we did that and you know, the next day, if I had students sleeping in class, I could, make the excuse well they must have had night watch last night yeah now i don't have that excuse <laughs> i still have students sleep in class sometimes, so. <laughs> that's so funny so uh, uh the uh yeah i i am really glad it, there was another aspect of it um that influenced my life i think in that i i learned at the navy we would so the the navy lab the Marine Mammal Program had two parts. One was the, the um, system side where I was teaching the dolphins to do these tasks. And the other side was the research side. And, mm-hmm. and the Navy has done more research than anybody else on the capabilities and physiology and medicine of, of these animals. And so every now and then, they, the researchers would come over and do a seminar for us trainers. And that would help us in training the animals. We'd learn about things that they had learned about their echolocation abilities and so forth. And then we could, it was a challenge for us because um, humans are very visual mm-hmm. animals, right? And the dolphins are very auditory. They're using this echolocation system where they're sending sound out and it's bouncing back and they're hearing the echo and they're, they're creating a picture of their world based on that, that sound. And so when these researchers would come in and give us information about how this echolocation worked, uh, and what the animals could do. I mean, they can they can tell the difference between a dime and a nickel uh, so cool. with this echolocation. It's, it's amazing. And then it, it helped us think in terms of sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was beneficial because uh, as a trainer, you're always trying to put yourself in the animal's place a little bit. You know, we're trying to communicate to the animal what we want it to do, what we need it to do. And we're trying to help it understand what we're what we're trying to communicate. And if we can, in some sense, put ourselves in the animal's place and look back at us and think, okay, what would make the most sense here? Mm-hmm. Um, it really helps in training. And so getting, and so as a result, I got exposed to this research side and 
and I found it really fascinating. It was really interesting what uh, this this quest for knowledge, and I think that influenced why I ultimately I, I was uh, with the the Navy's program for three years, and mm-hmm. but decided to go back to school and finish my my bachelor's degree because I just had my yeah. uh, AS degree from Moorpark, mm-hmm. and um, and I fully intended to go back to the Navy after I got more uh, school, but uh, I got uh, sort of seduced by research and got into a graduate program and, and actually studied behavior of white crowned sparrows. Okay. So something t- entirely different, but, uh, yeah, I really got interested in the, in the science of it. So yeah, it took my pat and my, my career in a different direction. Oh, that's awesome. Now is that, I also have a note that you trained blue or you worked with beluga whales in San Diego. Was that around the same time? Yeah. So when I had the, I was, the way the Navy does stuff, you actually, um, so I was hired as a contractor. Mm-hmm. Right? So I was, I worked for a company called Seco. Um, they don't exist anymore. The company that kind of bought them out, SAIC, Science Applications International. And so the, the, the Navy said, puts out a, a call. They say, we need, you know, uh, 10 trainers for mm-hmm. training dolphins. And mm-hmm. so then, uh, SAIC goes out and hires the people and brings them in. So you're working as a contractor and the, um, um, so the, I was, when I was hired for the dolphin program, mm-hmm. they said it's a two year, it's a two year contract. It's a two year program. It takes, cause it takes 18 months. I learned later. It's, the reason it's two years. It takes 18 months to train the dolphins. Then it takes six months to train the Navy guys to work the oh, dolphins. Okay. And, um, and so I had decided to go back to school. Um, the work I was doing was in Hawaii, but, um, wanted to come back here to California where I grew up and go to school here. And so I was able to, when the dolphin program was kind of winding down, then I was able to transfer to the Navy lab in San Diego Mm -hmm. uh, and, and work there for, uh, four months. And, um, they put me on a, I was the only trainer on a beluga and it was, uh, yeah, he was an amazing animal. He and it was a, it was a research project. So it was a capability study where we were, we were determining what he, what his echolocation abilities were Mm -hmm. so that the Navy came up with this sort of standardized test as it were. Mm -hmm. So when they first tested, uh, bottlenose dolphins, they came up with this, um, this, uh, a three inch stainless steel sphere, this mm-hmm. ball is filled with water and they hang that in the, in the water and ask the dolphin to tell them, is it there or not there? And, um, they found with, um, Atlantic bottlenose dolphins that they could detect that ball out to about 150 meters, mm-hmm. you know, like one and a half football fields wow. lengths. And so I was doing a study to, with the beluga to determine the sort of the same thing, but with the beluga and, um, the, I got the, I got this beluga. He was seeing this, this target out to, uh, over 250 meters. Oh, wow. And and much better. I mean, they're bigger animals. They have this huge big melon that (laughs) focuses the, the echolocation sound. And, um, so much better echolocators, they, they, they spend more time in shallow water. And that seems to be one of the, 
one of the adaptations, if you spend time in shallow, dirty, shallow water, you need to have better echolocation ability. And so, yeah, and I actually, I got them, like I said, I got them out to, I think it was 250 meters or so. And then I kind of ran out of room because where we were, where we were set up, there was right next to, um, a bunch of nuclear submarines and, uh, yeah, and the Navy wouldn't let me get any closer to the nuclear yeah. submarine. Oh. Really touch you about Did protect you? you about. I love belugas. They're like the Michelin men of the sea. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I you just... Yeah, this guy, they have so much expression. They can move that melon. Oh. And it, and so it gives them more facial expression than the dolphins do. And this guy, um, his name was Churchill, and he <laughs> would... Uh, he's, when I'd come down to his pen in the morning, he'd see me, he'd start singing, he'd start squeaking oh. at me, and, and he, he seemed genuinely glad to see me. Uh, it, it was great. And then there'd be times in the, in the um, training where, he, where maybe I had moved the target out a little farther and, and he wasn't seeing it, he wasn't detecting it. And I, I'd send him several times the search and he wasn't seeing it, and so he wasn't getting reinforced. And then he'd just he'd stop and he and he'd pull that that melon down like he was furrowing his brow <laughs> like he's thinking really hard. Oh, I don't get it. You know, <laughs> just, uh, yeah, he was great. He had a lot of personality. Now, do they? Why don't they use belugas over dolphins? Is it because they're bigger and slower? Is that why? So back in in the late seventies, when I was doing that work, the the Navy had acquired three belugas and. Two of them, I assisted on training these other two. I just drove the boat for the training of these other two. Uh-huh. The other the other two belugas were being trained for the mine hunting like the dolphins did. Okay. Okay. And so back back then, the late 70s, the, 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 the enemy that we were worried about was the Soviet Union. Uh-huh. And so the Navy was trying to increase their ability to work in Arctic waters. Okay. And so belugas from the Arctic would have would be able to do better than taking a, a dolphin from Florida up into you know up in the Arctic Ocean. Yeah. And so that's what that's what they were thinking. In fact, my my um, my head trainer when I was in Hawaii, he he told me that somebody came up with the idea, had proposed the idea of training polar bears as protection and like wow. you know uh, guard dogs and uh, he was real keen to 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 try that but somebody with uh more sense uh decided that wasn't a good idea <laughs> <laughs> so they never pursued that but um yeah so that was that was why the navy got the belugas was they were hoping that, you know they wanted to expand their ability to work in um, cold water um but they, the belugas are much bigger than, I mean, the dolphins themselves are, the, the Navy developed a whole system for moving these animals around mm-hmm. and they can, they can be even right in the system, you know, right now they, they use dolphins and sea lions and, um, they can take the dolphins and they can be anywhere in the world in 72 hours with those wow. dolphins. And, yeah. They have, a, it's an amazing system, but the belugas, just because of their size and their need for uh, colder water um, makes them a lot more difficult to transport around. And so if, and in fact, I've had my friends at the Navy say, if, if they could do everything with sea lions, if sea lions had the echolocation system that dolphins have, they probably wouldn't use dolphins because really? the sea lions are so much easier. To okay. Move yeah. Oh, wow. And, okay. 
Interesting. Are they easier to train? Do you think than a dolphin? I think the I think the sea lions are more fun to train in a way. They're, yeah. They're, you know, I mean, uh, uh, dolphins are really smart, and so you have that aspect of it. But um, they're they're in the water and you're not, and mm-hmm. there's and that creates kind of a separation there. Whereas the the sea lions can be right next to you, and uh, they're in a way dog-like. And yeah. uh, and I, you know, and humans have an affinity for dogs. I think we've you know been living with dogs for so many thousands of years. So yeah, I've known I've known people. I mean, my my aspirations were always to work with uh, dolphins and killer whales. I never got to work with killer whales. I, I feel real fortunate I got to work with those belugas. And, um, but, um, I got to, at the Navy, I got to work with a couple of sea lions a little bit. And there were a couple of animals that were kind of between projects that weren't being used for a project. And so on my own time, on my lunch hour, me and one of our boat drivers would go and we'd do a training sessions with these, with these sea lions. And I learned, I learned quite a bit from that. And then back here at Moore Park, when I started here at Moore Park, uh, at the Eden program, we had a sea lion here. And, uh-huh. uh, she, and so she was with us. Uh, she was, I think 29 when she passed away. So really? She was, was that, was that Shmoo? Shmoo. Shmoo. Yeah, Shmoo. Oh my God. She's 29. I, yeah, she, yeah. She trained a lot of students. She, <laughs> yeah, she was, a she was an amazing animal. And, uh, um, so we, yeah, so, and they're, like I said, they're, they're fun. They, uh, they like to, they, you know, they, um, I mean the dolphin, the dolphins try the dolphins are really smart with the, I've seen that sea lions really almost want to please you. I think, uh, lots uh-huh. of times and like yeah. a dog. And uh, so they're a lot of fun. I just went, um, behind the scenes a few months ago at the turtleback zoo in West orange, New Jersey. And they took me back to their sea lion habitat. And one just came out of the water and kissed my cheek. And I got to do some behaviors with it. I was like, <laughs> yeah. so I was like, so, I mean, I was probably a little too excited. Like they're trying to take pictures of me. And I was like, ah, <laughs> like smiling. You know what yeah. I mean? It's so funny. Cause the trainers do this every day, but it's just like, it's so cool. Like, yeah, yeah. I totally get that with the sea lions. Cause they're able to come on land yeah. and oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. So you start in 1985 full time teaching at Moore Park, correct? Yeah. So I was finished. I just finished my master's degree uh-huh. at UC Santa Barbara, mm-hmm. and uh, Bill Brisby, who had started the Eden program, he was retiring at that time. He was the only full time professor in the program, and then there were several part time uh, instructors. And so um, he was 62 and decided to retire. And so I interviewed for the job and I was fortunate enough to get it. It was big shoes to fill. Um, and uh, I mean, he was uh, my mentor. And uh, and it was, you know, this is, I, I, I mean, looking back on it, I, I, I think, boy, that was, um, I was crazy to take the, <laughs> the job. I don't know. But it was, it was like I'd had enough success in school and in training the animals. I felt I could do it. And, uh, um, I'd like to think I've been successful at it. I've grown the program. There's, we now have uh, three full-time instructors and, and, uh, half a dozen part-time instructors. I was involved in, uh, designing at the, when I took over, we had, um, our facility was the exotic animal compound, which was uh, about an acre and a half facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't open to the public and we got to, um, I got to help design 
uh, America's Teaching Zoo that we built here on campus. And uh, that's uh, a five-acre facility and um, and helped with some of the construction and uh, moved all the animals in. I was proud that we, uh, you know, we had a number of big cats, lions and tigers that we needed to move. And um, that was, you know, not a long distance from the bottom of the hill by our football stadium up to the our new facility, which is up on the top of a hill here next to the campus. And um, we trained them all to, um, we had we had one crate that we could move them in. So we, get, we trained them, get one at a time, get into the crate, we'd roll the crate onto a trailer, and we'd drive it up here to the zoo, and then, and then release them into their new enclosures up here and go back and get the next one and so forth. And we managed to move. Uh, about half a dozen cats uh, without having to use any anesthesia. So it was a lot safer and, and a lot safer wow. animals. So. Let's talk about the animal collection. Were these, you know, animals that were maybe confiscated from people who had them illegally or did they come from other zoos? How did they, how did the America's Teaching Zoo acquire their collection? Yeah, we get the, we've gotten animals from all over, all different places. We've had a number of confiscations like that. In fact, one of our, our male tiger right now is an animal that was confiscated here by California Fish and Wildlife. Oh that was an illegal pet. Uh, you know, it was a little cub that uh, somebody had acquired illegally here down in Los Angeles. And, um, and then, but then we have, uh, uh, when we got him, then we also uh, contacted another facility on the East Coast um, that was generous enough to donate a, a female of about the same age as mm -hmm. a companion. And so we were able to bring her in and introduce her. And it's really um, – so we have those two tigers together. They're great for each other. And plus the students get to see the difference We that, that male who was raised by somebody who shouldn't have had him – is uh, a, a lot less confident is uh, he's he uh, he's getting better but he uh, lots of times he was like um, especially men he was afraid of oh. and uh, yeah so it's good for the students to see the difference in that personality that they have um, some of that may be um, the sex of the animal male and female but talking to i know lots of trainers uh who've worked with lots of tigers and they generally most of them who take tigers like on movie sets and things they prefer male tigers they tend to be more confident than the females and so we see just the opposite in our two and uh probably because of the the way that male was raised by somebody who didn't know what they were doing oh. uh, so yeah we have animals that that we get that way that are confiscations we have um um, what we have loans of animals, you know, um, zoos have animals in their collections that are, uh, um, they don't have room to put them out on display. They may be animals that are well represented in the population in terms of genetics. And so they don't want to breed them anymore. And, uh, so we have a number of, of animals from other zoos that are here that are on uh, either donated to us or on loan to us. Mm -hmm. We're working on with the San Diego zoo right now. We got a, a vervet monkey from them a few months ago. And we're working on getting some more primates from them. Um, 
we have uh, one of the, the birds, like macaws and, and parrots, were former pets. You know, mm-hmm. people got them as pets, and then they got tired of being woken up at sunrise by the screaming. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and so, uh, you know, we're having their furniture chewed up by this oh. big beak. And so, oh. yeah, so they've, they've donated them to us. Um, so we have, um, yeah, we have... Uh, I mean, oh, and then we have some, some that um, are uh, on loan to us from studio companies that train uh, animals for movie and TV work. Uh-huh. And sometimes they have animals that, in fact, that's how the sea lion, uh, Shmoo, came to us. Uh-huh. She, she had been acquired as a pup for, to do a movie called The Golden Seal by a company called Animal Actors of Hollywood. Uh-huh. Animal, Animal Actors of Hollywood uh, is in uh, not too far away from us, in Thousand Oaks, and they uh, they were a big influence, a big uh, supporter of the program as we got started. And uh, so they did this movie with her, and then um, the head of the company, Hubert Wells, an amazing trainer, um, he uh, he said, "I've got this the sea lion. He eats fish. He's expensive to feed." And uh, <laughs> You know, maybe you guys could use them. And yeah. so uh, Shmoo came to us. Yeah. So we have we have animals like that, too. Now, would you say, and this is a little off topic, but using exotic animals like that in the film, do you think that's like a dying industry? Well, some of the trainers I've talked to um, kind of think it is uh, mm-hmm. with the um with the advent of computer generated graphics, um, they can do quite a bit. Filmmakers can do quite a bit. Uh, and, and shoot, I mean, they're even, um, you know, they're even replacing people. Uh, with some oh, of I guess, I guess you're right. <laughs> yeah. Right? They can, yeah. They can, they can have, you know, they can have actors who are, uh, dead back in a movie now and yeah. stuff, you know? Um, so, um, but uh, at the same time, there's still some of these guys are still working. In fact, one of the, Steve Martin of Steve Martin's Working Wildlife. It's kind of funny, you know. There's Steve Martin, the comedian. There's yep. there's and then there's two Steve Martins that work in the animal industry. There's Steve Martin of Natural Encounters Inc., uh, who's an amazing bird trainer he, in Florida. Uh, for example, his co- his company does the the bird show at Disney's Animal Kingdom in Florida. But he consults all over the world. Uh, and then there's Steve Martin here in California. Steve Martin's working wildlife who does studio work. And he's an amazing, um, amazing trainer in terms of big cats, especially. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did uh, several, uh, uh, was it? Uh, he did the wolves and dances with wolves. Mm-hmm. What was that 30 years ago? Yeah. 20 years ago, the uh, <laughs> action uh, jungle book, uh, all kind of leopards and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, oh, nice. he's, he's amazing, right? I was talking to him not too long ago, and, and um, he said because the computer-generated stuff has is doing so much, some companies are kind of uh, getting out of the business, and he's actually gotten more work. He has kind of specialized. He's been getting a lot of work for um, – he has a grizzly bear that's been getting a lot of live-action stuff. So, wow. and that's, you know, not, our, not everybody has a grizzly bear for good reason. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of going that way. I think it's, I think it's a little sad. I know, um, my wife who teaches here in the program also, she, she's kind of boycotted the, the new, uh, uh, 
the Lion King movie because she doesn't <laughs> like the computer generated stuff. Yeah. But, um, the, uh, you know, for somebody who's grown up around animals, you can often tell it's not a, not a real animal, but at the same time they do some amazing things. And, and I guess I have to take the broader view. I mean, I, the, if we, if we're getting, um, some appreciation or if we're creating some appreciation for these animals, if it's through, you know, through movies, through TV, through this entertainment, I think it's worthwhile, even if it's computer generated, because like I said, the animals need help. So the more that people care about them, uh, the better, the, the bad thing would be if people, companies go out of business and there's no live animals to, to work and then they the the studios stop using even the computer generated because they're not doing stories about animals uh, mm-hmm. and it because that's where that's where i think we run into problems when people it's just not on people's radar they're not they're not seeing animals they're not hearing about the plight of animals and nature and uh mm-hmm. and they if you don't hear about it you think well it's not a problem when what it is i mean i was just listening to a story just uh uh, uh, a study is just published here from Cornell um, showing that uh, in in North America since 1970 we've lost uh, in terms of the total population of individual birds we've lost three billion birds oh the population is three billion individuals smaller than it was in 1970 and um, and that's in, in terms of percentage that's um, that's almost 25% um, wiped out. And uh, that's a, uh, that's really concerning because uh, these, these birds have an important place in our ecosystem. So everything functions well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that, we have an issue right now going on with PETA. So I'm in Idaho and I live in this tiny little town called Marcy and there's like a thousand people and PETA, there's a road in Marcy called chicken dinner road. <laughs> and PETA is trying to, they're urging our mayor to change the name of, you know, chicken dinner road to just chicken road and this and that. And, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, man, there is so much going on in the world with, wild animals and like what is going on people have no idea and it's like it would be amazing if they could actually focus on that instead of attacking you know what i mean like would you agree with that or because yeah. i know i know you've came oh, across yeah. with Peter, you know an animal activist we don't have to dive too much but what are your thoughts on that yeah whole, yeah I, I i would support your your ideas there wholeheartedly it's the the when um when people get into these discussions about and I've talked to lots of people who have these ideas that they've been, their ideas have been influenced by the animal rights activists and they um, think that animals should not be under human care, but they're not looking at what the alternative is. They're not looking, they're not seeing the bigger picture that, I mean, I've, there's been many times in interviews I've told people, well, I, if I, in a perfect world, we wouldn't have zoos. We wouldn't have animals under human care. We'd be able to go out and, I mean, I had, this was six months ago, scuba diving at uh, one of our Channel Islands out here. I got to interact with a wild octopus. Whoa. That was really amazing, you know. It kind of brings it around, having those uh, octopus in the aquarium at home. I found this this one was sticking out of this rock as we swam over, and he didn't retreat. So I picked up a piece of shell and brought it slowly up to him, and he came out and he grabbed my hand with his tentacles and tried to pull me down. Oh, this, my God. So he did that. It was an amazing interaction. And if everybody could have that 
that kind of interaction, you would, you know, people would not dump uh, plastic into the ocean. It would not, you know, we would worry about pesticides running off in the ocean and, and protecting that environment. But not everybody can have those interactions. There's mm-hmm. there's kids in the inner cities of our of some of our big cities who, um, who have never seen a wild animal except maybe a pigeon or a squirrel, and yeah. and, and and sometimes they're lucky to see those. And they're and when we have graduates with wildlife education businesses go into those areas and bring animals to them, um, the, the kids are amazed and. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's such a big part of our world and, and, and they're, they're in such danger. There's so much going on. And I wish the animal activists would put some of their money and their efforts into restoring habitat. If, if PETA just spent some of the money that they spend on advertising on, on buying some habitat in the rainforest or doing something that if they advertised about the, the 70,000 fires that are going on in the Amazon right now. And that the, the, our, this rainforest, uh, this amazing rainforest in the Amazon is burning up. Um, and people should be really worried about that. Um, you know, so it's, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's like focusing on, uh, whether the road should be called Chicken Dinner Road, is, Chicken Dinner Road scheme of things is not going to have a big impact on whether the rainforest in the Amazon burns or not. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just um, right. I I just worked with a cheetah on I think she was seven months old on the Today Show with a oh. yeah with a companion puppy. I know it's like dream animal, right? That's but great. It, oh, yeah, but it, oh, great. but with the permits and legalities, it was actually it was insane. This oh, cheetah yeah. was like the biggest diva. Like it had to have its own dressing room. It was like share, like yeah. we get share on the you know Today Show. But <laughs> it was yeah. crazy though going over my talking points and even with the host and my producers. And I think at the time they say there's less than seventy five hundred cheetahs left in the wild. And I'm t- mm. I'm telling the host okay. this. And they are just in shock. Like, what? Like, I mean, it's just so, I feel like it's so important to continue to do these educational things because it's like people have no idea. Like, wait, what? There's less than, I mean, wild, are you serious? Like, you know, they're facing extinction with a lot of animals. And so that's why I feel like, you know, it's important what I do and, you know, what you guys do and what zoo professionals do because it's like a lot of people don't know that it's not all, you know, I don't know. Yeah, we can, you know, I focus on, I, I have these passionate young people come here who care about animals and I, and I teach them how to care for these animals and train the animals and talk about the animals and, and, and hope that they go out and do great things and improve the plight of animals. Um, but the, there's a vast population of people out there that don't have anything to do with animals and you people like you, Corbin, are reaching those people who don't have a daily interaction with animals and need to know about what's going on about animals. So yeah, it's all, it's all important work. And, uh, I would be pleased to see you keep it up. You're doing a great job. Thank you. I appreciate it. Guy, I feel like a proud student, although I never, (laughs) I never attended the program. Okay. So really quick. So let's just, I just have a few questions for you because we're kind of getting, we're almost actually, oh wow, we're approaching an hour. So Okay, this might be hard. Are you ready for this? Okay. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Okay. So- what is your favorite animal to train? <laughs> um, boy, yeah, you did make it a little hard there because uh, my my when people ask me what my favorite animal is, I I always tell them it's my dog. Um, <laughs> 
And and I used to say I appreciate with the dog, I appreciate the thousands of years of domestication that, that we have so many built-in behaviors with the dog. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I have a I have a puppy who's not uh, quite two years old now, and he started peeing in the house just the other day, and I don't know what's going on with that. So yeah. <laughs> we used to we used to joke at the Navy about. You know, we joke that uh, uh, animal trainer's dog is like a mechanic's truck. It doesn't work. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> but, um, boy, the, you know, <laughs> my, um, I really enjoyed working with the dolphins and the belugas okay. and the sea lions. And, and I've gotten to work with camels and lions. Uh, I've raised a, a lion. I've raised a tiger. Um, I've worked with, uh, some monkeys and, um, but I, I recognized at some point in my career, I recognized that I could have a bigger impact in terms of helping animals by training people okay. and teaching the people to go out and, and, uh, cause I'm one person and I can only do so much, but if I can, if I can turn out 40 or 50 students every year that are going to go out and help animals, uh, I can have a bigger impact. And so one of the things that, that, I mean, we're, we're doing some neat stuff, some cool stuff with training animals here at, uh, at the college. Um, but I guess what gives me the most joy now is seeing the, the, the students eyes light up when they're having success with their animal. Um, humans are animals too. So, Uh, humans are my favorite animal to train. Okay. So Gary and I, I kind of have a tough question. Have you ever had a student? Cause you've been doing this for a while, right? Have you ever had a student yeah. who was like so good, but like really book smart, like, Oh, straight A's. But like when it yeah. came to training yeah. zero skills, did you have to like sit down and like, Hey, listen, Stephanie, you just are, it's not, it's not <laughs> cut out for you. Have you ever had that? Yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> kind of a joke. I mean, I have, my students don't always appreciate my sense of humor, I guess, is sometimes I like I'll, I'll so my training class, they're assigned uh they have to train two animals each semester and they have to train a number of behaviors, you know, and they and I'll and I test them on on the performance and I've there's been occasions like the animal the animal doesn't do very well. Mm-hmm. And I'll look at the student and I'll say, Well, have you thought about dental hygiene? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and, and I'm just joking. I'm just kidding with them. And and I would never say that to a student. I didn't mm-hmm. think would take it as a joke. Mm-hmm. But the the animal care industry is so broad. There's so many different ways to to help animals that um, I think anyone can find a niche, can find a role. So even if they're not good at training animals, which is my thing, that's okay. Uh-huh. Um, I like I said, Julie Scardina is a much better presenter uh, with animals, <laughs> and she's an amazing trainer as well, much uh-huh. better than me. So Cyril was did the right thing in hiring her, and not me. And um, so everybody has a, a role that they can fulfill, I think. And so that's one of our. Not only are we teaching students these skills here, but we're also teaching them about the industry and about the field, and helping them find their way and find what what their strengths are and and uh help them discover where they should go what they should pursue i would say i would like give them to either clarence the tortoise or maybe go the reptile route (laughs) 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 we 
<laughs> we have a we have a raven uh, named Ebony who she's pretty old now, mm. but for many years I I said that over I don't know over the course of fifteen years there were maybe three students that were actually training in the Raven. All the rest of the years, the Raven was training the students. She yeah. was much smarter than the <laughs> than the students. So, yeah, there there are animals that are that really understand the system and how to game it, how to play the how to play the the, the student, as it were. Um, our Clarence, our Galapagos tortoise, is great, and uh, we had we had one year. I had a student who was who was one of those was really good in the academic part and and also a good trainer. And that's where I've seen the students that really excel is people come, you know, people come to the program with misperceptions uh, about what animal training is. And when they're able to put those aside and learn how the theory works, how operant conditioning works, and then apply it. And that's sometimes the big challenge. And that's one of the strengths of our program, again, is the opportunity to take what they learn in the classroom and apply it with animals these live animals in our facility, then um, when they're able to do that, they really excel. They, you know, that they figure out they figure out so much more and how to problem solve. I had a student trained in Clarence who wanted to do a uh, a shape discrimination study okay. uh, training. So where where Clarence is presented a um, uh, if I remember right, one like a square that had horizontal lines on it, and a square that had vertical lines. Uh-huh. And he had to choose the correct one, and by touching it, then he'd get reinforced. And um, I actually got some advice from a uh, colleague who works with dolphins at Epcot Center uh-huh. in, in in Florida um, at the Living Seas there, and uh, and she said, "Well, you know this." that's not a real easy thing even for dolphins to do. So, so, um, Clarence, he, he wasn't a star, but, uh, but the student trying anyway and figuring and seeing what worked and what didn't work in terms of helping Clarence understand what he needed to do in order to get his reinforcement of some cactus. They learned a lot by doing that. That is so cool. And that kind of leads me into my next question. Um, what is like, what are the biggest mistakes student make students make coming into the program? Um, well, they take a different sort of different, uh, routes. Um, I've seen sometimes we get students that are quite independent mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and in, in our American culture, I think we we applaud the rugged individualist kind of thing, and mm-hmm. and yet everything we do with animals is a, is really a team effort. Um, you know, you couldn't go on the Today Show with those animals without that team of people behind you that that help uh, bring those animals oh, there. Yeah, right. Yeah, and and so the sometimes that's a hard thing for students to learn is how to work with their peers, how to work with other people, because oftentimes they, they relate better to animals than they do people. Right. And they have to, they have to learn. So uh, I've seen both. I've seen students who couldn't quite figure it out and they didn't do so great. And then on the other side, I've, I've seen students who, who struggled, but figured it out and, and became real good team players and then went on to be, you know, very successful. So that's always gratifying to see that. So that, that's, that's a mistake, I think. And then the other, 
other mistake that some people make, I think, is is um, not recognizing that this our program is twenty two months long, mm-hmm. and for for somebody like me, at, you know, tail end of my career, twenty two months. It doesn't, you know, I've been here um, over thirty years. Twenty two yeah. months. That's nothing, right? Yeah. But a young person, a young person starting out coming in, that looks like, oh, two years. Oh, that's, <laughs> oh, that's a long time. And, and, and they sometimes make the wrong choices. It's like, you know, it's like, um, well, people have to support themselves. And I understand that. And I've had, but I've had students come to me like, you know, scenarios, something like, uh, Gary, I'm sorry. I, I know we planned this. I was going to meet you for this training session, but my boss at the pizza parlor called and they oh, need me to no. come. Yeah. And, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, do what you need to do. But you know, the pizza parlor job, it, it, you got to wait. How important is that compared to the, your opportunity that you have here for the, these 22 months? So sometimes uh, people, you know, their perspective maybe isn't quite, uh, their priorities aren't aligned quite, uh, how it should be. And, and I'm not saying that, that, um, uh, that I feel disrespected or anything. I'm not saying that I'm saying that they are maybe losing out on making the most out of the opportunity that they have here right now, um, uh, to get as much as they can out of this program. I, you know, I would have said, I would have said, well, it better be a damn good pizza then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bring me some breadsticks. Yeah. It better be a good pizza if you're missing this training session. Uh, what yeah. is, okay. This might be hard. What is the most difficult animal to train? Wow. So the, um, so I could answer that in terms of, of species, but, I think it's the, the, where I look at it is, so I'm a real strong believer that the way to understand training is to think about it as a system of communication, right? That where the trainer is trying to communicate to the animal, what they, what the animal needs to do in order to get the reinforcement. And the animal is trying to communicate back to the trainer, whether they understand or not. And so I think that the difficult animals are those that have, some um some disability almost uh you know they're so like our i mentioned that raven that's mm-hmm. so smart so smart well she's lost vision in uh in her eyes um one all, one eye i think almost entirely the other eye is, is real bad mm-hmm. and so that that makes it more difficult. So visual stimuli are harder for her to see. And so that removes one channel of communication that the trainer would have. Mm-hmm. And they have to do more with auditory things and with tactile things. Um, so things like that. We, we have, um, we have a, a servant uh, who this past year developed a uh, valley fever infection, uh, coccidioidal mycosis, fungal infection mm-hmm. in his eyeball, in his left eye, and we had mm-hmm. to remove that eye. Oh, no. And, uh, and so he, he lost half of his, you know, lost vision one eye. And he, but he has adapted pretty well. But at the same time, the students have to be aware of that. So when they're on his left side, 
They have to, you know, they have to realize, okay, he's not going to see this cue from the left side. I've got to make sure I, I get around to the right side or I, or I have a good auditory cue that he's going to understand that he can pick up from this side. So those, I mean, the, one of the places, one of the cool things that we get to do, uh, being here in California is I get to take my students on field trips to some great animal facilities. And mm-hmm. in fact, we're getting uh, in a few weeks, we'll go up, um, to Northern California and spend a week up there. And one of the places we go is guide dogs for the blind okay. in San Rafael, California. And, uh, we have a number of graduates there. And one of the things that they've told me about is in order for them to be, it's called a mobility instructor. And they're going to train the, the guide dogs and then train the blind people to utilize the guide dogs is they have to go under blindfold. They have, so they've trained, they've trained the dog to be a guide, right? But then the test, how it is, it's kind of like I was talking about testing the dolphins when they don't know and the trainer doesn't know where the mines are. The uh, guide dog trainer has to put on a blindfold and navigate through the city with their dog. And oh they... But that's when a when a, a print, when a guide dog um, trainer starts as an apprentice. It's one of the first things they do. They have to spend 24 hours under blindfold to mm. get a feel for what is it like to be blind, because they they have to put that have that perspective in order to train the dog, so the dog can communicate with their blind person, mm-hmm. right, and as well as the trainer can when they're when they're teaching the the student the the client to work the dog be able to communicate with this person who's blind and and like i said vision is such an important sense for humans so that's uh so learning learning how to communicate when you've lost that kind of channel is uh can make things difficult yeah that makes sense okay do you have this is my last question do you have a dream animal to train like a polar bear maybe or <laughs> that would be kind of cool actually <clears throat> polar bear would be pretty cool but i i've always wanted to train um uh wild dogs hunting dogs um oh. painted dogs um and uh i never had the opportunity to do that i think i i i like dogs I, uh, i've had labradors i've had mainly labradors at home like i said but and we have a couple of new guinea singing dogs that okay. are really fun that are really different. They they look like a domestic dog, but they're but they're different in mm-hmm. their behavior. And uh, but uh, African hunting dogs, uh, painted dogs, are a species I've never gotten to work with that I would I would love to do that. And and they have, I mean, I see, <laughs> I just um, just heard um, an interview with uh, Jenny Bush uh, from uh, Endangered Wolf Sanctuary. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think it's called. In uh-huh. St. Louis, and they they had uh, two two female painted dogs give birth about the same time, and they ended up with uh, 26, 26 pups at once. Oh wow! <laughs> and they, yeah, and they managed to they placed half of them with the Cincinnati Zoo, but that would be a challenge to work with a, a big group of rambunctious puppies like that that would be something that would be cool that'd be cool okay well gary thank you so much for coming on the show i had such a good time talking to you i could talk to you for hours but we're already past we're like an hour and 16 17 minutes yeah yeah. if i am someone wanting to pursue this program i mean is there an age i mean do you guys take people of all ages young old i mean what would we do we do okay and and we've we've had 
We've had people with all kinds of educational backgrounds. We do require that you have at least, uh, we have five prerequisite college courses. The, the program is academically demanding. Okay. Uh, that's one of the things that you can get here at Moorpark College that's different from just getting experience hand, handling animals. It's the academics here that, that we put a lot of effort into, and that, but they are demanding. And so we require the student to have at least this, these college level classes, general education classes out of the way before they start. We've had students that come to us with bachelor's degrees already, sometimes even master's degrees. Okay. We've had people come to us that were changing careers. They were had retired from 25 years with IBM and now they want to train animals. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we take all kinds of people. And, um, and the, um, so it's, you know, it's um, moreparkcollege.com. Go to the, the website and uh, look for the lion uh, logo for uh, and click on that and then you'll, it'll take you to a page that has information about both about America's teaching zoo uh, but also about becoming a student and you can get information about the program there that's great Gary thank you so much I really appreciate your time this has been a lot of fun Corbin thank and uh, continued success uh, keep doing the fighting the good fight uh, helping the animals out there will do will do thanks a lot Gary Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.